It is part of our regular rhythm here at ACAC to partake in communion together the first weekend of every month. I want you to know that we have strategically chosen not to do that this weekend, but to do it next weekend. So just know we didn't forget. Um, we just have chosen to do that next weekend, and that will become more apparent if you join us next weekend And why. Uh, let me pray for our message and time together in God's word. Heavenly Father, we look to you now in your word. Your presence is here. Your spirit lives within us. Uh, I recognize and we recognize together that my words have no power to change anybody or any, anything. It is your written word. It is your spirit that has the power to transform, that has the power to instruct us and correct us. And so, Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would come today and that you would speak. I pray that our ears would be open to receive, our minds to comprehend and, and think, and more importantly, our hearts and spirits would be willing to change where necessary. Spirit, do what only you can do. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. amen. Again, we are in week two of this series called Unoffendable, Giving Up the Right to Be Angry. And if you missed last week, I really would encourage you to hop on our YouTube page or go to the website and just visit uh, that message from last weekend. But in case you did miss it, we talked about how we live in a world where people are constantly either in the state of being offended or they're looking for a way to be offended. And it's the presumption that somehow I'm entitled to be angry because I've been hurt. That I have the right not just to be angry, but to hold on to my anger, to take offense. And it's not that somehow we can refrain from ever experiencing anger. We cannot. Anger is a natural human emotion and response to when we've experienced hurt and pain. However... When we hold on to that anger, when we take offense, it leads us to sin and it leads us to living in a way Jesus did not intend his followers to live. We looked at two verses written by the brother of Jesus, James, one specifically that talks with how are we, to, to, we are to respond when offense happens, that we must be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to get angry. But in the world that we live in today and in our culture and society, we do the opposite. We are quick to get angry. We are quick to speak or quick to respond or quick to post. And we are slow to certainly listen if we ever get around to actually doing that. 
And then in the very next verse, James tells us that human anger does not produce in us the righteousness that Jesus desires for us. And unfortunately, for us as Christians, we have really created a reputation for ourselves of being people who are easily offended. And outrage and anger that we see being played out every day in our culture has infiltrated and even, I would say, infected the body of Christ. But this is not consistent with what the Bible teaches and what Jesus wants for us. And that the very things that offend us, the very people that offend us, are the very things and the very people that Jesus has called us to forgive. And the reality is that you and I can choose to be unoffendable. And as Jesus followers, we should choose to be unoffendable. And our idea last week was that Jesus followers should be the most unoffendable people in the world. Two quick things before we dive into today's message. Last weekend, we passed out these uh, little black rubber bracelets that say unoffendable. And I don't know if there are many left. You can kind of check with the help desk uh, or guest services and find any if they're there or trade something for somebody who was here last week. But uh, a, quick, a quick story about that. I, I got an email from a family in our church and there was uh, just a bit of a situation between friends and um, they were sharing this with me. And uh, one of the friends reached out to the lady in our congregation and this friend said, uh, hey, I hope I didn't offend you. And the response was, uh, please, of course you didn't offend me. I understand what you meant. And by the way, look at my new bracelet. And she sent her a picture of her bracelet. Here's the second thing I want to say, and it's far more important than that. I want us to all recognize, I mentioned this at the end of the message, but I, but I want to begin this message with recognizing there are different levels of hurt and pain in our life that lead to anger. It's one thing to be offended and to be angry um, when someone's driving crazy on the road. It's one thing to be hurt and angry at, in a broken relationship or to get in an argument with your spouse or a friend. And then there is the level of hurt and anger that comes from injustices like abuse. And I just want to recognize that as we talk about those things, we still have to address the offense and anger that we hold on to. Um, but let me give you an example. Last week after service, I had a, a dear lady approach me that's a part of our church, and she has recently gone through a divorce and has gotten out of an abusive relationship. And that ex-husband who was abusive had been reaching out to her and her children. And she said, Pastor Allen, I'm wrestling with what you're talking about, about being forgiving and unoffendable. Are you saying that I should engage again in that relationship? And I said, no, absolutely not. You can choose to be unoffendable. You can get rid of all anger and bitterness, but still have healthy boundaries, and we should, okay? So I want to be clear. I have a pastor friend. I was looking at one of his messages this past week, and I love what he said. He goes, you can pray for someone and press charges at the same time. So, so, so don't recognize, just, just know that there are different levels of hurt, pain, and trauma. And as we talk about being unoffendable and living unoffendable, we're not talking about putting ourselves in places where we can experience that again. There, are, there is such a thing as healthy boundaries. So today, I want to 
we're going to look at a lot of scripture, more than normal in, on a weekend. And we're going to look at what the Old Testament and New Testament has to say about anger. And I want to give us a theological understanding of anger. But before we do that, it's important to recognize what anger is. Anger in itself is not a sin. It's a God-given emotion. When we become angry, anger is a signal that something's wrong and it needs to be addressed. What we often don't recognize or sometimes forget is that anger is often a response to other emotions such as fear, helplessness, disappointment, anxiety, shame, and guilt. Sometimes when we're feeling afraid, anger is the secondary response to that. All of us recognize that we are going to experience anger in this world. However, as Jesus followers, we must always look to God's word and how we are to filter and understand both our world and our emotions. And so we always have to recognize more than self-help books, more than um, even counseling, and that's great, and it's important, and it's a part, it can be a part of our healing process. First and foremost, God's word should inform how we are to process our world and our feelings, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and gain this theological understanding of anger. And in the end... My hope is that we will realize as Jesus followers how we are to deal with our anger. This also includes our response to when we see injustice in the world and recognizing what truly should motivate us towards action in bringing justice and healing to our world. And then we're even going to talk about this thing that we like to call righteous anger. So first, let's go to the Old Testament and if you searched the entire Old Testament for every occurrence of the word angry or anger or wrath, you would find that the majority of those references refer to God's anger. In looking at all of the verses in the Old Testament that refer to anger, the majority of them, at least three times as often, those references are to God's anger. And most of the time, God's anger is directed at two groups of people. One, it is the sin of his people, the Israelites. And the other, it is the sin of the nations around them. So in a biblical view of the Old Testament, God's anger and wrath is always what we would call righteous anger because he, after all, is God and is the only one who is righteous. So in short, the overall summarization of anger in the Old Testament is this. Anger or wrath rightly belongs to God. Now here's a quick note. It would be a mistake for us to think that the God of the Old Testament, who is our Father and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who lives angry or is quick to be angry with us. So while the majority of those verses in the Bible talk about God's wrath or God's anger, let me remind you that he tells Moses in Exodus, the Lord, the God, uh, your God is a God of compassion and mercy, 
I, God says, am slow to anger. I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. That's including us. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. Now, if the Old Testament speaks far more about divine, divine anger of God, well, then what does it say about human anger? Because that's what we're talking about. Well, three things about human anger in the Old Testament. First of all, there certainly are references to the natural human emotion of anger. One of those, you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, where his brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph eventually becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And later at the end of the story, Joseph's brothers, they're all reunited. And in that, I think it's Genesis chapter 45, Joseph tells them, hey, don't be angry with yourselves. God worked all of this out. He did it. He knew it ahead of time so that we would be saved. So there are examples like that that just demonstrate human anger. The second thing, though, when it comes to human anger in the Old Testament, there are a few texts where one could conclude human anger can be justified as righteous. And when we as Christians talk about righteous anger, we often go to this one example, and that's Moses. Remember when Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments of God? They're written on a tablet and Moses is coming down the mountain with these two tablets, the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. And he, what does he see? He sees the people of Israel building, uh, they had built a golden calf and they're worshiping another God other than Yahweh. And Moses, when he came near the camp, he sees the calf and the dancing and he burned with anger. Now watch this. He threw the stone tablets down to the ground smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and he burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into water, and he forced the people to drink it. That is a whole different level of anger, people. I mean, there's getting upset, and then there is burning, boiling anger, and Moses demonstrates that, okay? Now, this example, was Moses right to be angry? Of course he was. The people were disobeying God. They were worshiping another God, okay? But we're gonna talk about this righteous anger. So that's an example that some would use as an illustration for human righteous anger. Another verse in the Old Testament that people will use is Psalm 139, 21 and 22, where King David writes this. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Sometimes we feel that way. Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Now, how do you wrap your mind around this with Jesus in the New Testament saying, love your enemies, okay? So sometimes people will refer to this and they will justify righteous anger based on this verse. However, in those instances, like in Moses and like this one here, I would argue it is a bit simplistic, to conclude that because there is a certain emotion displayed by someone in the Bible, either directly or indirectly, that that is a biblical endorsement of that emotion. Are you with me? So just because it's displayed as an emotion, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is endorsing that in how you and I should live. Especially when, here's the third point, the majority of the verses in the Old Testament associate human anger with sin or as causing sin. 
And here's where I'm going to go through several verses. I can't hit them all, obviously, but several verses in the Old Testament. First, we can go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 4. Remember Cain and Abel. Cain became very angry because God accepted his brother's offering and didn't accept his own. And then God speaks to Cain and says, why are you angry? Sin is at your door, Cain, but you must rule over it. He doesn't, and he ends up killing his brother, the first murder in the Bible. You can go to Jonah chapter 4. Most of you know the story about Jonah and Nineveh. The prophet Jonah was ticked off. He was angry that God was going to give compassion to the people of Nineveh. God says to Jonah, the Lord says to him, is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry? You can go to Psalm 37, verse 8. The same guy who wrote, Lord, your enemies are my enemies. I hate those who hate you. This this same guy writes, stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. The writer says, control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. Now, the book of Proverbs has the most extensive commentary on human anger. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs 14, 29. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. Proverbs 22. Don't, be, don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul. Here's the bottom line. In the Old Testament... Anger belongs to God alone, and his people are continually warned of the danger of anger. Now, the New Testament not only continues with that same theme, I would argue it amplifies it. When you get to the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, there are about 20 different words or phrases that are used to communicate the idea of anger. In that, there are about 90 references in the New Testament for anger throughout all 27 books of the New Testament. And much like the Old Testament, the large majority of those 90 references about anger, I believe it's about 38, almost half, almost half of the references refer to guess whose anger? God's. They are referencing God's wrath or God's anger. Now, There are a few examples, and again, when we talk about righteous anger, people are quick to go to the instances in which Jesus got angry. And if you didn't know, if you haven't read the New Testament or the Gospels, there are a few times where Jesus demonstrates anger. Let's look at a couple of those. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus is in a scenario where there's a man who needs his hand healed, and it's the Sabbath, and the religious leaders of that day They don't want Jesus, and they don't believe Jesus should heal on the Sabbath. And you're going to see this ticks him off. He looks around at them, those religious religious leaders, angrily, and he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. If you go fast forward a few chapters later, Mark chapter 10, Jesus now, he's not just angry. um, At this moment, he's not angry with the religious leaders. He's angry at his own disciples, his own followers, And he saw what was happening. He was angry with his disciples. Well, what was he angry about? This is the example where they were trying to hold the children back from Jesus. Remember that? The kids wanted to come and they wanted to see Jesus. And the disciples are like, no, no, no. This is for adults only. Jesus is like, no. 
Peter, Matthew, Mark, John, let the children come to me. It angered him that his disciples were holding the children back. In John chapter 2, Jesus demonstrates anger towards the merchants in the temple who were gouging people trying to buy sacrifices for worship. Let's look at the emotion Jesus shows here. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers. The coins were all over the floor and he even turned over their tables. In the case of Jesus though, we must remember that he is fully man and he was fully God. He was human like you and us, but he lived without sin. Therefore, his anger was pure. Jesus was capable of taking a whip and snapping it and flipping over tables and not sinning. You and I try that, how many know we move into sin? Why? Because we are fully human. We're not fully God. So there is a difference between Jesus demonstrating anger and you and I demonstrating anger. Overwhelmingly, the New Testament teaches the spiritual dangers of anger. Time and time again, followers of Jesus are warned about the impact of anger and are admonished to rid themselves of all anger. Going back to Jesus, this summer we went through the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus talks about murder he actually goes to the root of murder, which is anger. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. The apostle Paul picks this up in his letters to the church that he wrote to. When he writes to the church in Corinth, Paul writes, for I am afraid that when I come... Paul's saying, I'm afraid that when I come visit you, ch your church, ACAC, just using that as an example here, that's what it would be like. He goes, when I come, I won't find, I won't like what I find. And you're not gonna like my response. Why? Because I'm afraid that I'm gonna find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. He writes to another church. He writes to the church of Galatia. In the book of Galatians, Paul again, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, and outbursts of anger. Keep it there for a minute. Go back. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Look what Jesus associates. Now, we get real hot and bothered no pun intended, when we talk about sexual immorality or impurity or hostility or celebrating high Halloween sorcery, but, but Paul attaches anger as well. He doesn't make a distinction with all of that. He said all of that is a result of your sinful nature. Then go on. He says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. See the seriousness of anger? One more time, Paul doesn't get off this theme when he writes to a different church in the book of Colossians. Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice behavior, slander, and dirty language. Here is the bottom line about anger according to the Bible. There is a place for righteous anger and vengeance. But guess who's the only one that can yield it? Why? Because he is the only one who is righteous. Righteous anger 
does not belong in the hands of followers of Jesus. It belongs to God alone. I read these words from a pastor who wrote, Vengeance is too dangerous a weapon to be placed in the hands of sinners. This is consistent with how anger is portrayed, described, and mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anger belongs to God, not to humans, especially not to those who call themselves Christians. Anger is dangerous, and it quickly leads us to sin. Now, when it comes to righteous anger, we would be best to leave that in the hands of the one who is a righteous God. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded or even encouraged as his followers to act in righteous anger. Even in the few verses where it seems possible, such as Ephesians 4, 25 and 27, a few of you have been waiting on that verse. Even in that instance, we're gonna look at it here in a minute, there is an immediate warning against hanging on to anger. So let's go ahead and go there. This is a New Testament verse that many use when talk about, I can hold on to my righteous anger. In your anger, do not sin. Now this is, I think, the NIV. Uh, The King James Version says, be ye angry. Okay, some of you, that's your favorite verse of the Bible. (laughs) Be anger, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Let me show you this. Three verses later, five verses later, five verses later, Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness. So while he says in your anger, do not sin or whatever version, be ye angry and do not sin. Five verses later, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Now, some might say, doesn't anger motivate you? Can't anger be a good motivator? It can make you get up and do something about something that's wrong. I want to eliminate one common idea, and that's this. That's the idea that anger and action are synonymous. They are not. We can easily confuse the two, thinking that if we're not angry about a situation, we are simply accepting it. Let me tell you, you can be against something and not be angry. You don't have to be angry to act. I will go as far as to even say anger should not be our motivation to act as Christians. Anger and action are two very different things. And confusing the two actually hurts our efforts to set things right. All you have to do is go to Twitter and Facebook sometime to figure that out. There are lots of people that are angry on social media. You will find lots of people angry and taking a stand. But my question is, how many of them are actually doing something about the problem? A recent study by the University of British Columbia actually has found that people who join causes online are not more apt to actually doing something. They're less likely to take action. Research shows that people who click like on insert whatever cause it may be, they're actually less likely to give of their personal resources, or to personally be involved in fixing the problem. The bottom line is that many people who are in love with taking stands that cost them nothing. There's a book called Who Really Cares that's about that very thing. It turns out that people who are often the most indignant in protest 
are less likely to be part of their own, to give of their own resources or to do anything to actually take action to fix the problem. Often as you maybe talk with someone about the idea that the Bible doesn't endorse human anger, someone could say, well, we have to do something. I would say, yes, absolutely. We need to take action. We need to do something. But my question is, why do we have to be angry to take action? Can't we just do the right thing because it's right? Why do we have to wait until we get mad about it to take action? Followers of Jesus should see the problem before it happens and act, not wait till they're angry. Why do we have to be mad about it to take action? The Bible gives us plenty of commands to act and pursue justice. We should pursue justice. We should take action in just. But never ever in the Bible does it say we are to do that with the motivation of anger. And here is the point for us today. That we must, as Jesus followers, allow love, not anger, to serve as the catalyst for action. We heard this very idea last week written in the very words from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He understood of all people that love should be the catalyst for action, not hate. The man's house was bombed. And in the midst of that, he's telling himself, do not harbor anger. And he walks outside and says, let love for our enemies, love for them be the motivating factor. And I wonder if he wasn't reading Paul's words at that time in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul writes, if I give all that I possess to the poor, if I see a problem, if I see something that's unjust, and I move to action, if I even give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Why can't love be the motivation for our actions? Why can we not see people created in the image of God and out of love and justice for them, let love be our motivator? Why do we have to wait till we get angry? As Jesus followers, it is our love for humanity. It is our love for our neighbors. It is, our, it is love for God's justice that should motivate us, not anger or malice. As I close, I want you to think about this. The very writers of our New Testament, they fully understood injustice and brokenness in the world. The writers, Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, Matthew, John, Luke, they all were living in injustice. Early followers of Jesus, in many cases, they were being targeted, they were being imprisoned, and they were being killed. What's more, in Middle Eastern culture at that time, it was filled with infanticide. Their culture was filled with slavery, filled with racism, sexism, child abuse, and unjust wars. Believe me, they understood and they knew it. Yet in the midst of all of that, these early Christians got letters from their leaders telling them to get rid of all anger, period. The early church dealt with injustice daily and was aware of the widespread injustice affecting others. Yet in the midst of this, they are told, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. Friend, 
church, we are to pursue justice. We should stand for those who are disadvantaged and cannot take for themselves. Are we going to see it and get angry? Of course we are. But in the same breath, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would rid us of that anger. And we should not bottle up that anger, take offense, and let that be the motivation. Love for our neighbor. Love for the justice of God. Love for humanity, people created in God's image. That should be the catalyst for action. Stand to your feet this morning. Today's message I know is a bit of a cliffhanger because, okay, we're not to be angry. The truth is, and just based on the response over this past seven days from when we started this series, I know there are a lot of us that are carrying anger. And now the question is, all right, well, what do we do with it? Come back next week. (laughs) In all seriousness, in all seriousness, I want us to pray. Next week, I'm going to even share with you just some of the ways in which I've processed real betrayal, hurt, legitimate pain. It only hurts us if you carry offense. It only is hurting you. And so we're going to open the altars. We're going to look to God's word first, and then we are going to pray. We're going to talk about what is the antidote to offense. What is the antidote to anger? And then we're just going to pray. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you have a family member that's not here, maybe because they're angry at God, angry at the church. I want you to invite them to come. If you have a friend that you know is is dealing with anger, a loved one, a neighbor, whatever it may be, I want you to invite them to come this week. And I want you to pray throughout this week. Don't wait till next week. Begin praying now. God, reveal it. Maybe there's things in us that you don't, maybe some of you don't even realize that you have a bit of an edge to you. You're just, you've carried offense for so long, you're blind to it. Pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal that and just begin to prep your heart for surgery. And we're gonna look to the surgeon to remove that and lift us off of it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray for your church. Lord, anger is a real and human emotion. And our blood does boil like Moses at times when we see injustice, when we respond to our own hurt, anger, and pain. But I believe that your word, even in the midst of that, even though we may, in an emotional standpoint, have a, have a right to be angry, we don't have a right to hold on to it. And so, God, I ask that in this next week you would help us. During our times of prayer, as we read your word, would you just begin to prep our hearts to remove and lift those things? We need you, Spirit of God, to be people who are unoffendable. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Let's be unoffendable this week. You're dismissed.